This is hell. Manufacturing dissent since 1996. This is hell. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast live stream host, Chuck Mertz. Producing this week's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, how old can your kid be to be bad when it's your fault and not human nature anymore? Mm, six months. Oh crap! <laughs> I've got a lot to atone for. <laughs> I got a. I just. I'm, I have a bad kid. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I blame it on bad parenting, but otherwise, fine. I always tell that to my uh, girlfriend's parents that I blame everything that she's ever done wrong to bad parenting, and it never really goes over well. But ah, makes me laugh. I had, uh, I attempted to relax this weekend, and I don't know if I remember how to relax anymore. I really don't know. I can't relax. I'm either reading something or staring at some screen or doing some chore or something. I just can't, I just can't sit there and relax. I don't know. If anybody has any tips, please email me, chuck at thisishell.com. Chuck at thisishell.com. More importantly, Alex, what's this week's question from hell? Uh, I'm still working on it. I'll have it by the end of the show. All right. And then Alex will be revealing this week's question from hell after our guest this morning. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell will win, as our winners have been winning over the last few winning weeks, our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker cap. You can check out our new This Is Hell gray on black trucker's cap and all our merch right now by going to thisishell.com. And clicking on support, Alex will be sharing this week's question from hell in a little bit. On today's show, remember the Afghan war? You know, mm, the war to catch and punish, if not kill, the terrorists who attacked the United States on 9-11 about 20 years ago. You know, the terrorists who I'm pretty sure have either been caught or killed since then. Yeah, that was and I guess is still about, that war is still about the Taliban harboring 9-11 terrorists 20 years ago, I guess. You know, the Taliban and its leaders, most of whom are probably also dead, the ones at least who harbored Al-Qaeda. Anyway, that war is still going on, not that we know what's actually happening on the ground. The problem is, since an agreement called Reduction in Violence, or known as the RIV, went into place in February, nobody, not the U.S., not the Afghan government, not the Taliban, is reporting on the violence that's taking place in any accurate way. And they are definitely not reporting on the violence against civilians that is leading to civilian injuries and death. So what is the state of the Afghan war, and why isn't anyone talking about it, like during the presidential campaign here in the U.S.? We'll try to figure out the war in Afghanistan. We speak in a few with co-director and senior analyst at the Afghan Analyst Network, Kate Clark, who posted the article at the AAN website. War in Afghanistan in 2020, just as much violence, but no one wants to talk about it, which you can find that article at afghan-analysts.com. In 1999, Kate was posted to Kabul as the BBC correspondent, at the time the only Western journalist based in Afghanistan. Kate was expelled by the Taliban in early 2001, but returned to cover the 2001 war, contributing to award-winning journalistic coverage. Kate was on our show back in March 2017 to talk about an article she had just posted back then 
which was called, let's see, Afghanistan, birthplace of the armed drone and targeted killings, a future model for Afghanistan, question mark, also for Afghanistan Analyst Network. You can follow Kate on Twitter at KateClark66. Follow the Afghan Analyst Network on Twitter at A-A-N-A-F-G-H. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is Helen. Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is cheesy fried rice. Ugh. The Chowhound article, this cheesy fried rice stars pantry staples you usually pair with pasta, asks... Taiwanese-born... Oh, and asks that you should just oh, say right, sorry. Right, sorry. Uh, Taiwanese-born NYC chef Reggie Song is a believer that all cuisines are connected. During his research of intersectionality between world cuisines and ingredients, he came upon a recipe for a pantry fried rice in a Japanese cookbook. The article says, What if you have no issues experimenting with non-Asian ingredients in your fried rice, but you have a problem with anchovies? <laughs> Reggie says you can swap with capers, pepperoni, prosciutto, pancetta, or other salty ingredient or protein... <laughs> The idea is to think of balance here and find something that will play well with the other ingredients while bringing the saltiness, depth, and umami that this dish requires. Reggie says to always serve your fried rice with a side of pickles. The acidity and brininess of pickles elevates the earthiness, saltiness, and garlic in the fried rice. So that makes this week's hangover cure cheesy fried rice, which I actually want to look up that recipe. <laughs> it just sounds like the pickles are going to, you know, fix your hangover cure, doesn't it? It's just carbs and pickles, right? Right? Oh, I'm getting so tired of these hangover cures. I don't know who looks them up and who writes them, but I'm getting real tired of these because they seem to be just kind of a combination of other ones. This is not the media. This is hell, and we're about to give you plenty of reasons why this is definitely not the media, as if, as it is time for us to do our new, now quarterly, seasonal summary of what we've learned over the last three months here on This Is Hell, as we are today celebrating the final day of summer. And tomorrow, autumn begins. And these are all arbitrary dates and seasons. I realize that. Are we endorsing the Gregorian calendar? I guess. Kinda. I don't know. Leave me alone. I gotta tell you what we've learned on This Is Hell this summer. The pandemic changed the way we think of the public, the public space, and everything about what it means to be part of or in the public. So we considered the idea of the counter-public that we can create together. Monocrop culture is death to agriculture, and Paraguay is fighting back against their government of beans. Police unions are racist power brokers in opposition to the movement for black lives. That was the headline of a story we discussed that pretty much sums up the conversation way better than I can. That Camden model of policing that liberals were touting is an obstacle for any kind of real change, despite having the appearance of change, you know, like most things liberal. We considered anarcho-blackness and how blackness anarchizes anarchy, which is beautiful. The Democrats stole California from Bernie, and there's every likelihood President Trump will still steal the presidency in November or December, or however long it takes for the media and public to allow him to do it. Nearly half of Oklahoma was rightfully, justly, and finally returned to the indigenous people who were promised, again, half of a freaking state in the United States, which is pretty amazing and was only on the news for like eight seconds. The 1619 Project has done a great job at raising awareness of just how pervasive slavery was in what would become the United States and its impact throughout U.S. history. Except that project ignores all the slavery that happened before 1619, dating back to the first decades of the 1500s. The first decade of the 1500s. 
within a very short time after Columbus invaded the West. Conservatives desire to placate their Confederate flag-waving anti-immigration far-right racist contingent. The foot soldiers wealthy, the wealthy need at unsafe protests and rallies to give their movement the veneer of working-class support. That whole strategy is about to blow up in everybody's face, including the wealthy conservatives who instigated this nonsense in the first place. Despite the devastation we are all facing due to climate change, humanity continues down its path of cruelty and brutality against each other. That is, unless we change our relationship with nature. Defunding the police sounds great until you consider the idea that the rich will just hire their own cops who have little to no public oversight and are even more racist and brutal than our current police. Michael Brooks died. Michael freaking Brooks died. Michael Brooks freaking died. Which is still so weird, it's still incredibly hard to believe. To save the planet and the private ownership of all power and energy. If you do not make all energy and power publicly owned and operated, the planet's done. Or at least so screwed up, life will not be worth living for long. Our work, our labor, can actually have an impact on our bodies over generations, leaving its genetic mark on descendants. Just ask the pearl fishers of the Indian Ocean. Ecuador's turn away from democratic socialism and toward neoliberalism has been devastating the country, unleashing poverty and all sorts of inequality they were not experiencing only a few short years ago. We know our healthcare system has failed us, and we know we need something else, but we didn't know what that something else was until we learned about the hologram and peer-to-peer health for our post-pandemic future. Sure, we want fewer prisons, and you'd think you'd you'd rather, say, I don't know, be at home with a monitor shackled to your leg than in whatever hell incarceration you've left behind in prison. Problem is, that turns your home into a prison, and your home doesn't have the services that prisons have. So with prison reform, liberal tech solutions are not all that great. Instead, how about decarceration? South Africa has not changed that much since the end of apartheid when it comes to white supremacist actions by the police and the brutal violence of capitalism expressed through land and housing. Globally, the left has turned on their comrades protesting in Hong Kong, which sucks. Want to see where this far-right nonsense is taking us? Where we're headed to? Look no farther than Italy, where all this nightmare already happened. Hell, our hellish future is happening right now in Italy. The Postal Service is under attack by the Trump administration, which is not good for the people who support the Trump administration, who live in rural America, who depend upon the mail for everything, including life-saving drugs. We can learn a lot about what it is possible with the current uprising by studying the Republic of New Africa movement from the 1960s. That is, if so much of that history was not secret and being kept from us by the FBI. The roots of today's divisive politics can be traced back to the days before Watergate, during the 1976 presidential campaign, and throughout the Jimmy Carter administration. The reason our response to the pandemic sucked so bad here in the U.S. is because we do not share a common purpose, abandoning the sense of any common good, for an understanding of freedom that is defined by an individual's inalienable right to own a personal arsenal of weaponry. Our hate-fueled border policies do not work when we are living in an age of climate change and we then get hit by a pandemic. And as there will be more of both climate change and pandemics, we got to change our thinking on borders fast. White supremacists have infiltrated U.S. police forces, eh, but you knew that. 
what you probably didn't know is white supremacist understanding of history is more realistic than the white accept or American exceptionalism and innocence liberals and conservatives embrace. Instead, white supremacists know the U.S. has a white supremacist past and they want to return to it. In fact, the denialism of our white supremacist past by liberals and conservatives alike is what leads to white supremacy and allows it to continue unchallenged. Want to end white supremacy? Then end this nonsense of American exceptionalism and innocence. The, that idea of freedom being defined by an individual's inalienable right to own that personal arsenal of weaponry that I was talking about just a couple seconds ago. You know, one, the one that people who call themselves patriots arm themselves to defend. Yeah, that is not how the Founding Fathers understood or defined freedom. They understood it as freedom to govern one's sense itself, a, a collective democratic freedom that has nothing to do with individual rights at all. If protest is supposed to be a right in a democracy, then why do so many so-called democracies have laws restricting even criminalizing protest? Climate apartheid is the coming police violence crisis, which is another headline of a story we discussed that says it a lot better than I could, like the one I mentioned earlier. Climate change and the pandemic are revealing our food system sucks and that just-in-time delivery does not work at all during any crisis whatsoever. And with more and more crises in our future, we better turn to agroecology or a lot of us are going to be really hungry really fast. The Iraq war was not about blood for oil and there was no OPEC oil embargo in the 1970s either because it's, it's just not how the global oil market or natural resource market works. The global housing crisis cannot be fixed by building more low-income housing. What you need to get out of housing to solve the housing crisis is... Capitalism, you know, like housing was back before neoliberalism. Okay, it wasn't that great back then, but at least we were providing housing and it was far more accessible to everyone and not only seen as an investment. And on our last show, we learned that we are definitely not all in this together with COVID-19 and there's no better example than how the virus is affecting the indigenous people of the Amazon region. And today, on the final day of summer, We'll find out what is happening in a war that is being ignored in the current presidential campaign and in the U.S. mainstream me news media, like almost everything we've covered over the past three months during the summer here on This Is Hell. Another words, again, for another three months, for another summer, we have offered you our argument, our evidence, our guest's case that, yes, this is hell coming up what is happening and what is not happening in the war in afghanistan we'll have rotten history tell you the rest of this week's guests and have this week's question from hell for you our listening audience live from late capitalism where the only thing that is not privately owned is our own privacy this is hell right now in Afghanistan. Well, it's hard to say what's happening right now in Afghanistan as none of the armed actors in the war is being all that trustworthy for what is happening on the ground, especially when it comes to violence against civilians, including violence that leads to civilian injuries and death. Returning to this is how to get us caught up on what's taking place in the Afghan war as much as the U.S., the Afghan government, and the Taliban and other insurgents allow us to understand Co-director and senior analyst of the Afghan Analysts Network, Kate Clark, posted the article at the AAN website, War in Afghanistan in 2020, Just as Much Violence, But No One Wants to Talk About It, which you can find about find at afghan-analysts.org. 
Kate, welcome back to This Is Hell. Oh, it's great to be on your show again, Chuck. Kate was on our show back in March of 2017 to talk about an article she had just posted, which was titled Afghanistan, Birthplace of the Armed Drone and Targeted Killings, a Future Model for Afghanistan, which ends with a question mark, which is really sad because unfortunately it looks like that has turned out to be the future model for Afghanistan. You write that 2020 has been marked on the one hand by the U.S.-Taliban agreement and the prospect of intra-Afghan talks, and on the other by continuing violence. By mid-July, the U.S. had withdrawn several thousand troops, bringing its numbers down to 8,000. It has also largely stepped away from a direct role in the conflict, except for occasional airstrikes in defense of the Afghan government forces. The Taliban have continued to accuse the U.S. of attacking them in the uh, words of the Eid letter from Taliban letter Habatullah Akunzada, I'm trying. That's by <laughs> Thank you. By carrying out frequent drone attacks, bombardments, raids, and artillery attacks. Yet the U.S.'s withdrawal from a major direct role in the conflict is uh, testified to by the United Nations Assistance Mission in Afghanistan reporting on civilian casualties. It attributed the last civilian casualties to international forces in an airstrike in Herat province on February 17th. So the U.S. has decreased the number of troops they have in Afghanistan. The U.S. is no longer has a direct role in the, in the war between the Taliban and the Afghan government. Yet the U.S. is still committing airstrikes against the Taliban for the Afghan government. At this point, how dependent is the Afghan government? How dependent is their military and their security forces for U.S. direct presence in Afghanistan? How much do they need those airstrikes? If those airstrikes went away, how much control would the Afghan government have over Afghanistan? Ah, that's a big question. So um, the airstrikes themselves are much, much reduced. So basically, since the Taliban and the U.S. signed their agreement, which was on the last day of February this year, the U.S. has largely withdrawn from the conflict. The number of airstrikes it's carrying out are very limited. And also the, the, um, the armed groups that were being backed by the CIA largely um, have stopped conducting night raids against people's homes. So it's, it's actually really big. And if we look at the... Uh, if we look at the number of civilians killed or injured by the various parties to the conflict, that the last ones that the UN noted were in February, so that was before the agreement was signed. And uh, in another example of, of the changing role of the US military, last year in its report, the UN had a whole section on civilians being killed in, in night raids by these US-supported armed groups. This year, they didn't even feature. So it, it, it has been a, a really big change. Um, at the same time, the Taliban and the ANSF are fighting harder than ever. So where are they fighting harder than ever? You talk about how there's been a drop in suicide bombings. Suicide bombings usually happen in urban areas. These are, seem to be happening in rural areas. So where is the fighting? How has it shifted? So when the Taliban and the Americans reached their agreement, um, the what the two sides were going to do next on paper was that the Taliban would not attack foreign forces and uh, the US would start withdrawing troops. And basically both of those things have been met. Now, at the same time, the U.S. said that they had a verbal agreement with the Taliban to reduce violence. Uh, 
And the Taliban said, absolutely not. We, we have the right to continue to attack Afghan government forces. So you have this, you know, the rather bizarre situation where the, uh, the Taliban are claiming that they're fighting a jihad, but they're avoiding attacking the foreign forces and they're only attacking and killing their fellow Afghans and their fellow Muslims. But, you know, bearing in mind that this is a long war and there are many ironies, this is just the latest. What they have done, though, and they seem to say that this is voluntary rather than a, as by agreement with the US military, is that they have n- not really attacked urban centers or major military centers, but they have been very, very active. So they've been attacking checkposts, um, assassinating people, abducting people, killing hostages, really consolidating their extortion of uh, people's money. So that's either stopping travelers or taxing businesses and uh, householders, consolidating their control of uh, territory and of the major highways linking the urban centers, but not generally trying to take over district centers or provincial centers or carrying out the sort of huge mass casualty terrorist attacks in cities. Is this an attempt to make the war less visible either to the outside world or to Afghans domestically? I, th- I think you've n- uh, nailed, nailed it on the head. Uh, yes, I think absolutely. Um, it's, partly, it's partly that and it's partly the Taliban wanting to carry on the military, their military endeavor without doing it in such a way that it draws an, a response from the US and particularly the, uh, the airstrikes. And it's, you know, it's a, for someone like me who cares very deeply about uh, civilians, that's my primary concern in Afghanistan. This is a really, it's a really tricky and rather nasty uh, subject or, or balance to be thinking about because this year, since the since the U.S. stopped um, conducting airstrikes and supporting night raids, the number of civilians they have killed has gone to zero. At the same time, uh, for people living in areas which are Taliban controlled, they are living a measure of peace that they haven't seen for, for many years. People talk about being able to sleep in their beds at night to be able to farm their lands without concern that they're going to be you know, killed by indirect mortar attack or, or, or an airstrike. At the same time, uh, the Taliban have been um, not trying to take over, but take, you know, attacking ANSF bases. And the ANSF has been responding with rather careless indirect fire, so mortars. And this has meant that the, the uh, you know, the trouble has moved from the farmers living in Taliban areas to those living near a, uh, bases belonging to the Afghan army. They're now the ones who can't get out to farm. And also at the same time, we know that the last time the US military, the foreign military withdrew from the war, this was 2014 when um, former President Obama um, decided that most troops should come home and most troops, most foreign troops have not had an active role in the conflict since then. Early on, he said that the US military um, could only target Al-Qaeda and later Daesh, not Taliban. And 
This triggered a mass increase in the amount of territory that the Taliban controlled. So they took a lot of places, captured a lot of places. And of course, this can be really, really damaging to civilians. Uh, we're just about to publish some more research about living in Taliban areas. It's not very pleasant. Um, they are an author authoritarian organization. They, there's not, they don't brook opposition. It's difficult to affect the way that they rule. And this is one of the major differences between the Taliban and the government areas where there is a measure of freedom of expression. Uh, schools are opened. There's a, a lot of corruption, a lot of bad things on the government side. But the Afghan government is not authoritarian and the Taliban are. So that, that's the danger with the, with the US withdrawing uh, largely from the war is that the Taliban are biding their time for now because they don't want to draw the US back in, but the potential for them to attack district centers, provincial centers, or to start uh, you know, mass casualty bombing campaigns again is has not gone away. This is why I like talking to you, Kate. I had 55 questions written for you, and I have half dozen other ones just as follow-ups to what you were just mm -hmm. talking about. Uh, so let's just go back to 2014, 2015 for a moment. Why did the Obama administration decide that it was time to no longer uh, target the Taliban and instead only focus on Daesh and Al-Qaeda? Well, I think this was something that was wanted by both Kabul and Washington. Um, you, you know, the U.S. and the other international military has been in Afghanistan for an awful long time. There is now a, a Afghan security forces. Um, there had been a transition so that they were gradually taking control of the of the country. And the end of 2014 was when the Kabul government officially took control of all the country. And you know this is right. This is their, this is Afghanistan. It's 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 the country of the Afghans, not of the Americans or the British or anyone else. So in that sense, it you know it was something that had to happen. I think one of the problems that we saw was that the Taliban had not gone away. The insurgency had not been defeated. The the surge that President Obama ordered when more than 100,000 um, U.S. troops, as well as other troops from as well as troops from other NATO nations, were desperately trying to force the Taliban back. They did that, but the territory wasn't held. And I would say that at that point they should have been talking to the Taliban, or even earlier. That was the point when the Taliban were quite weak, before the surge, when you actually had quite a lot of people on the ground who were mature commanders, who knew what it was like to live in, a, in an era of peace. Uh, and the, the, uh, there were so many Taliban killed, in, including a lot of those more experienced men. And now you've got a, a much younger population uh, in the Taliban movement, many of whom don't know what peace is. So I think that was definitely an opportunity missed. And it, it left Afghanistan sort of uh, less able to deal with its, with its own problems, I'd say. So what happens? How does it change the negotiating process when the Taliban is not negotiating from a position of weakness, but from a position of strength? What does that mean for as you and I are the most concerned about, Af the Afghan civilian population. What does it mean now that the Taliban can be negotiating from a position of strength rather than weakness? 
Well, I think everyone realised that uh, President Trump and his envoy, who's called Salmai Khalilzad, he's, uh, he was born in Afghanistan, but has been an American citizen for many years and uh, a Republican for many years. Um, the mission was to affect, to get the Amer- American troops out. This has driven the peace process, the current peace process. So immediately they start from a position of weakness. Uh, they've had to promise a lot of uh, concessions to the Taliban. So if you, I mean, just get to just to get them to the table with the with the Afghan government. So if you look at the agreement that they drew up, um, what the Americans got from the Taliban was an agreement that they would not allow foreign forces to attack America or its allies. So not even a, a denouncement of Al Qaeda. Um, what the Taliban got was. Uh, an agreement for the for the partial withdrawal of American troops immediately, unconditionally. Um, they got 5,000 of their prisoners out of Afghan jails. And then looking forward, they agreed to start talks with the Afghan government. Um, on paper, the, the US is withdrawing the rest of its troops at, at the end of May next year. Now, that may not happen, but that was also in the agreement. So... I mean, the other thing that the Taliban got was an agreement that they would only speak to the U.S. so that the Kabul government was effectively sidelined and weakened. And overall, the Taliban have gained legitimacy. They, they see this as a victory. They see that the, the American invaders, as they call them, are leaving. They see this as a victory over Washington. And it's not clear whether they actually want to deal with the, with the, with the Kabul government or if they're just using this as a means of getting their major enemy, the U.S. military, off the battlefield when they believe they can hoover up you know, the rest of Afghanistan and uh, walk into Kabul as military rulers. Now, I, I think they're wrong in that estimation. I think that that would lead to um, another round of very bitter civil war. But it's by no means clear that the, the Taliban have honest intentions when they've entered talks with the government. And that's, uh, talks were about 10, started about 10 days ago. So one thing I just didn't understand is this whole idea that the U.S. had, that they had a verbal agreement with the Taliban. Why, what explains why the U.S. thought they had a verbal agreement? Maybe more importantly, a verbal agreement on ending deadly violence taking place in a war. Why settle for a verbal agreement to base your policy of disengagement and ending a direct role in the fighting? It doesn't It doesn't sound that like that makes sense. Either the verbal agreement didn't happen or why would you just have a verbal agreement on ending a war? It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I think it was to do with what, what uh, Zalmay Khalilzad could get from the Taliban. And I don't think he could get anything on, on paper. So I imagine there was a verbal agreement and it was to reduce, not end violence. Um, that's what he could get. And the Taliban from day one said, we are not bound by this. How much does Afghan policy here in the United States, how much of the U.S. policy towards Afghanistan, how much does it vary from administration to administration? How much has it changed from the Obama administration to the Trump administration? Is it even appropriate or a good way to analyze what is happening in Afghanistan by kind of separating it into presidential administrations? I think it is. Um, 
I mean, one of the one of the I'm not, I'm not an expert in any way on U.S. politics, but the thinking about President Obama was that he didn't feel able to go against his military advice, that he couldn't be seen to be a weak civilian when it came to Afghanistan, and that he want, that he thought Afghanistan was the good war and Iraq was the bad war, and that it was worth putting resources in. I mean, you cannot you cannot criticize America for lack of generosity when it comes to money and and commitment and energy and trying to sort things out, you know, whatever, however foolish some of those methods have been, or however foolish some of the thinking has been, it's, it's always been very generous with resources and with, you know, the lives of, of men and women fighting. And I think, you know, w- w- with President Trump, obviously, he's much less concerned about what he looks like. And uh, he's also got this, um, what appears from Kabul to be a desire to be seen to be ending the war, to be bringing the troops home, which plays well with, apparently, with some of his constituency. So I'd say rather than, I mean, I think it does matter who's in the White House, but it also somehow matters when an election is in Washington. So often Afghan policy is, is driven by the electoral cycle in America. And that has happened over and over again when you think either it's, you know, why are you doing this now? Well, you're doing this now because of what you can tell the voting public back home. Or why aren't you doing this now? And it will be, well, it's the start of a presidential term. Nothing's very urgent when actually it is very urgent in Afghanistan. So I think that's the other way that the U.S.-Afghan relationship plays out. You talk about uh, the drop in civilian casualties was largely due to U.S. forces in the Islamic State and Khorasan province, ISKP, being less involved in the war. So let me just ask you about the Islamic State real quick. The Islamic, Islamic State in Khorasan province is a branch of ISIL, of the Islamic State in the Levant. So how much has the Islamic State been defeated? Did it just move to Afghanistan? Because the way that the that President Trump has it, the Trump administration, is that he defeated ISIS. How do we understand the Islamic State differently when we know that they are also in Afghanistan? I'd say they're less of a branch than a franchise. You know, people, uh, various people in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which is the old uh, term for uh, the old. Khorasan is that region in in ancient texts. The various people kept reaching out to Baghdadi, who was the the caliph who who declared the Islamic State in Iraq. They kept reaching out to him, saying, "We want to have a branch here." And I think three or four times, eventually, uh, permission was given. But it's a fairly it, it's more of a franchise than anything to do with command or control or. Um, you know that people in Afghanistan answer directly to the to the uh, the leadership in in Iraq. So, but it did. It was it was never very big in Afghanistan. The Taliban have always been the major insurgency uh, insurgency movement, and they actually come from different bits of the Sunni Muslim world. So that the Taliban are very orthodox from the Hanafi school, and um, IS Daesh is is Wahhabi. So that's the, that's the bit of Islam which is found in Saudi Arabia and parts of the Gulf, which does not recognize other schools. It's particularly um, rigid and, 
you know, doesn't consider, for example, Shia to be Muslims, Shia Muslims. Um, it does a lot of telling other Muslims that they're apostates. So, and most of the Afghan population, with the exception of the of Shia Muslims, most of the Sunni Muslim population are Hanafi, like the Taliban. So ISIS, Daesh in Afghanistan was always going to struggle to recruit. Um, it did manage to take territory in the east, but again, that was partly because of um, people coming over from, from Pakistan and imposing their will. And that was, I mean, it's a long story, but it was... Uh, that region was destabilized by the US military trying to set up uh, militias to fight the Taliban. So it was the US military sort of meddling in tribal politics that destabilized that whole region and, and allowed um, Daesh to enter. It was a really hard battle to get rid of them with Taliban was involved, US military, Afghan military, and also uh, uh, community defence forces, uh, and they're largely confined to the to the high mountains now. Um, what we see is the uh, we see that really atrocious attacks that not even the Taliban would carry out attacks on uh, absolutely civilian targets like schools, um, sports centres, mosques. Uh, particularly those which have uh, which cater to the to the Shia Muslim population, I, uh, Daesh were targeting, and those are the attacks which have largely disappeared this year. You do mention the Afghan National Security Forces, although initially acting with restraint after the February 29th agreement, that's the Reduction in Violence Agreement, officially changed its stance on April 7th from defensive to active defensive in the face of sustained Taliban attacks. President Ghani ordered this stance to be changed again to offensive after the uh, attack on patients at the Doctors Without Borders run maternity wing of the Dasht-e-Barchi hospital in Kabul on May 12th. No party claimed that attack, but the government blamed the Taliban who disavowed it. Who could benefit from attacking a Doctors Without Borders maternity wing at a hospital? How would anyone benefit from such an attack? It was evil. And that's not a word that I use very often. But the gunmen entered the hospital. They deliberately walked through other wards looking for the maternity wing. And then they killed women uh, about to go to labor, those in labor, those just having given birth. It, it, it was a it, it was an atrocity. And uh, what everyone assumed was that it was sectarian because it, that hospital serves um, a part of Kabul city, which is largely inhabited by Shia Muslims. So it looked like an attack on, on the mothers of uh, Shia Muslims. Um, it was strange. I mean, Daesh basically claims everything. They, there's not, there has not been a bar low enough for them not to claim an attack. This one they didn't claim. And, you know, one theory was that if the Taliban did want to carry out or parts of the Taliban wanted to carry out an atrocity in Kabul that would so fear and uh, mistrust in the, in the government, which is a, a military objective for them, then taking on the guise of a sectarian attack, which they don't carry out officially, would be one way of doing it without drawing attention to themselves. And I should say, Chuck, that the number of these attacks that are not claimed to have been on the rise, um, 
I've just been doing some work with um, a map maker called Roger Helms, who's, who lives in your beautiful land. And we've been looking through the data from um, an organization called ACLED, which um, collates data on violence throughout the world. And um, what, what he found was that the number of attacks, unclaimed, insurgent attacks, unclaimed, was now higher than the combined number of attacks by Afghan security forces and the US military. So they are really on the rise. And this murkiness is, of course, really dangerous. You know, imagine if you're trying to, if you're an NGO trying to get supplies out to the district and you, you're not quite sure who's in control or who's carried out that attack or who's assassinated your key worker or the elder that you work with. I mean, at least with the Taliban, when they're being honest, you know who you're dealing with and there's some sense that you can, you can, work, you can work with them. But with unclaimed attacks, with these sort of murky, murky violence, it's really, really difficult. Does not claiming attacks, do you think that that might reveal that there is some change happening in the war? Do you think there might be, I don't know, some newfound sense of shame in these kind of attacks? I don't. I think I think my hunch, and I have it's only a hunch, is that a lot of them are carried out by the Taliban, but they don't want to claim them because they're in the middle of this peace process. Uh, they don't want to look bad. And uh, they don't want to draw the American ire. And I think that would fit in the, with the pattern of the way that both, both the Taliban and the, and the Afghan government have been downplaying their attacks since the agreement. And as you said earlier on, um, the Afghan government and the US military are not releasing the official data on the war that they used to. I think this is all part of, a, of an attempt to try and... Um, to look good, uh, given the peace talks that are going on in Qatar. And one of the things that they say is they cannot talk about these kinds of attacks because it will upset those peace talks. Would reporting, would uh, very honest reporting, trustworthy reporting about the amount of violence, and about, especially the amount of violence that's targeting civilians, would that actually get in the way of those peace negotiations? Yeah, I think it would. And, you know, there's been uh, moves by some of the people there to try and play down the war this year, to try and play down the, the number of people being killed. Um, we're about to publish some work actually looking at what's going on on the ground um, in three provinces. And as I said, this, you know, the, we've, we've been following the, the levels of violence very closely. And there's no doubt that it's intensifying. It's largely from the Taliban. Um, Afghan security forces um, are mainly taking a defensive role. However, often their, their defensive action is quite reckless, and that's led to a sharp rise in civilian casualties from both the Afghan Air Force and the Afghan Army when they, you know, for example, if the Taliban are attacking a, a, an army base and the people in that base fire back, but the Taliban are in a civilian area, then that, that will inevitably cause civilian casualties. I mean, it's difficult it's a difficult position to be in, but that it is incumbent on both parties to try and protect civilians. And at the moment, the Taliban are firing at the army from residential areas, thereby immediately putting civilians at risk. And the army is firing back into those, those populated areas. 
So it seems like neither side has any real concern for civilian life. Am I correct? Because you would think that one, you know, uh, people who are opposed to the Taliban would say that they're using the civilians as human shields, and then the government is using weapon are using weapons that are not in any way smart weaponry. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, we've seen this pattern again and again from the parties to the conflict that um, you, they, they care about their own civilians, but not others. You know, so they'll care about people from their own area or their own family. But it's it's often the case that there's this reckless behavior. Um, and it's, you know, it's heartbreaking. We saw 10,000 civilians killed and injured last year, and that's been the pattern for several years. It's likely to be that again, um, or at least nearing that, and unless out of the blue comes an agreement to the reduce the violence or or indeed have a ceasefire if that comes out of the talks in Qatar I would be surprised because it's the main violence is the main leverage that the Taliban have but there's a there's a slight chance that that something good might come out of them in the way of better protection for for civilians you also mentioned the potential for increased civilian deaths and injuries caused by extremists within the Taliban does the government, do the Afghan National Security Forces have any more control over their pro-government armed groups than the Taliban has of extremists within their ranks? How much can both sides blame extremists within their ranks on the instability that is continuing in Afghanistan? Uh, for the Taliban, they are absolutely, uh, have e- excellent command and control. Um, their, their key principle is obedience to the to their leaders so if I, w- I wouldn't say extremists within the Taliban is a problem I would say whoever's ordering it whoever is ordering these attacks is the problem um, and I should say on that note that not all Taliban are warmongers um, we do come across uh, Taliban who would really like to see a negotiated peace and they fear that their leaders are squandering this chance that they, you know, they don't want to see their sons fighting in an Afghan war. Uh, they would like this to stop. Um, it's difficult for them because, as I said, the Taliban are an authoritarian movement. They do not brook dissent within the ranks. It's quite difficult to organise. Um, but those those individuals are certainly there. There is a, I would say, there's a, there is a, a great deal of popular support for for peace, and it, that exists within Taliban ranks as well. On the government side among armed groups, um, I don't know if they're extremists. Again, it, I mean, for them, it comes down to an issue of command and control and how much um, how much the government values um, trying to re- reduce the number of civilians who get killed and injured in the conflict. So um, under international law, you know, c- civilian civilians inevitably are seen as inevitably dying during warfare, but you're, you are, you have an obligation to try and reduce the number and to minimise the effects of the war on civilians. The, 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 the government does not prioritise that. And with some of the armed groups, they don't have great con- control over them. So that there is definitely a problem there. How much do you think this underreporting is about the U.S. presidential election, or is that just a one small factor in the bigger picture? What a great question. I hadn't considered that. But yes, there may be um, 
that may be part of the equation. I hadn't thought about that, though, Chuck. But uh, it wouldn't surprise me if that's feeding into the uh, calculations. Because it would seem like this benefits everybody, the Taliban, the Afghan government, the United, the Trump administration. Every one of them benefits from this underreporting politically, correct? Yeah, yeah. It's great to be on the side of the Taliban. Uh, <laughs> Kate, uh, so you write um, even more so than previously, this is now an intra-Afghan war. Is that a civil war? What do you mean? And why is it best for us to understand it as an intra-Afghan war? I think it's really important to understand that this war is largely Afghans killing Afghans. Both sides have significant foreign support. Uh, the Afghan government couldn't survive without, in particular, U.S. support, both military and financial. But similarly, the Taliban couldn't survive without their safe havens in Pakistan and the support they get there from the military. And fortunately, the you know people people suffering are are, are Afghans on the ground. Um, I think, in particular, this really undercuts the the, the Taliban's claim that they're fighting a jihad. How can you fight a jihad if you're if you're leaving the unbelievers untouched and you're killing your fellow Muslims? I mean, in their terms, how can how can that be a, a holy war? Um, if there was a stronger government in Kabul, it would be able to make use of this uh, of of this in propaganda. I think. Um, I think also. I mean, I think globally, there's often misconceptions about what's happening in Afghanistan. Either people have forgotten about it altogether. Um, and have forgotten that um, there are still foreign troops there or there's still a war there. I, I, I do have people saying to me, is it, still is it still happening, the war? Or that people think that there's still a full-on US engagement. And I'm, I'm also constantly telling people, well, yeah, it's not really the Americans that are, are killing anymore. So I think it's important to, you know, to see, to try and be as accurate as, as you can about a a complex, old conflict like Afghanistan. Um, you know, we're all hoping that peace will come. I'm not particularly um, hopeful of what's happening in the in the negotiations, um, and and the withdrawal of of the U.S. as a military player. It's still partial, but it's really important. In that, that was the main leverage over the Taliban coming to the negotiating table. Once you lose that, I think they, I think the Taliban take heart and may well pursue what they consider their plan A, actually, which is military takeover. They've, they've, they have said that on the record. So can the Taliban be a police, uh, oh, I'm sorry, peaceful political force or movement, or, or does it need to have that force behind them? Does it need to be an armed force in order to be a political force? I think we see. I mean, at some point there will be peace in Afghanistan, and, and I, I, the Taliban do have a constituency. They're not without. I mean, they they are um, they're a strange group. They're mainly, uh, you know, people who've had a religious education, so they're they're either religious students or mullahs. They, they largely come from the south. They're largely rural. They're largely from the Pashtun, Pashtun ethnic group. So they're not representative of the country, but they are certainly, they cannot be ignored. And it was, you know, it was, it was, it was a huge mistake that Donald Rumsfeld in particular made in 2002 
in 2001 when he refused to allow any talks with the Taliban. Um, many of their senior leaders, there was, a, there was an attempt at surrender by uh, Mullah Omar, which, which Rumsfeld uh, reportedly vetoed. There were attempts by senior commanders to come over to the government side at that point. Many of them ended up in Guantanamo. They were, they were, you know, there was double dealing. People were tortured. There was mass incarceration without trial. You know, most of those people didn't make it to Bagram or Guantanamo, but who knows how many were incarcerated. There was use of torture, use of dogs. Men were stripped naked in front of their families. You know, this whole idea that the Taliban were, were the enemy and could not be dealt with was a huge mistake. And many of the Afghan players that took power off the back of the, the Taliban's fall just played the CIA. They played the, the uh, American Special Forces. They got their own personal rivals banged up. And this was incredibly destabilizing. The Taliban was certainly ready for peace at that moment. They were defeated. They were morally, psychologically defeated. And it was only this sort of, you know, violence and injustice that originally led to the insurgency starting. An insurgency, which I, say, I should say, has become very violent, very unpleasant, and, you know, a huge problem in its own right. But it, sh it should never have happened. First of all, I want to just tell you that it's been far too long that we've had you on the show. This is only your second appearance, but you were on three years ago, and we should have you on every three months because what's happening within Afghanistan is something that's being completely ignored. We've been speaking with co-director and senior analyst at the Afghan Analyst Network, Kate Clark, who posted the article at their website, War in Afghanistan in 2020, just as much violence, but no one wants to talk about it. One last question for you, Kate, and as always, our final question is the question from hell. The question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience might hate your response. You were just talking about 2001 negotiations. I believe these were the bond talks, correct? Well, even, you know, the Taliban didn't even need to be at bond. They just right. needed to be left alone in their homes. They didn't even need to be brought on side politically. They just needed to be left to live in peace. Yeah. It was a really low bar at that point. This was when our media was telling us and people who are supportive of the war were telling us we don't want our troops to be parachuting in with subpoenas. We want them to be parachuting in with guns. And then in 2003, when there was the anti-war movement against the Iraq war, uh, people were saying, look, even people were, who were opposed to the Iraq war, look, I'm fine with the Afghanistan war. That's the right war, but I'm against what's happening in Iraq. And you heard that over and over again. So, Kate, my question from hell for you is, was the Afghanistan war the right war? Yes, but is my answer from hell. So, you know, at the time, Afghans wanted to get rid of the Taliban. There was no popular support for them. A better, a better method would have been to encourage local uprisings. And this happened in some places, but not enough. Instead, the CIA paid uh, militia commanders to, to get rid of the Taliban. And that meant that when the regime changed, the military men were in control. Many of them had committed war crimes previously. They did not represent the population. And it, it started another cycle of violence. So, I, I mean, my, my feeling at the time was 
go slower. Don't be in such a hurry to have a big vic- military victory that you can have on television. You know, I know the 9-11 attacks were horrible, but this is a country you're dealing with, a whole country. Uh, best to do it with the minimum amount of violence and to, as you go, support democracy, support representative government as the next phase, not catapulting catapulting uh, unrepresentative military men into, into government and then leaving them there and funding the, this new government. And I think you would have needed a, a US military, you would have needed the US military to um, particularly deal with Al-Qaeda fighters and to break the Taliban front lines, but it did not need to be done by funding, funding commanders on the ground. I think that was the major mistake. We got regime change, but we got the wrong regime. Kate, thank you so much for being on our show again. You can follow Kate on Twitter at KateClark66, and you can follow the Afghan Analyst Network on Twitter at AANAFGH. I'm sorry. It's the Afghanistan Analyst Network. Afghanistan Analyst Network, yes. Thank you so much for being on our show again. I really appreciate it. And you can find our interview with Kate from back in March of 2017 at our website, thisishell.com, when she was on to talk about her article, Afghanistan, Birthplace of the Armed Drone and Targeted Killings. Thanks so much for being back on our show. Always a pleasure. Thank you. All right. Take care. We definitely got to get Kate back on more regularly so we can be talking about the Afghanistan war. We don't talk about it enough, and we should be, and I apologize to everyone for not doing so. But this is not the media. This is hell, so we do cover things like the Afghanistan war. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. So, Alex, have you figured out a question from hell for our listening audience? Next week's question from hell is, what can I say to get you in this cult today? What can I say to get you in this cult today? I thought you said Colt, as in the old Chevy Colt, and there's only like seats for three people in there, so not many people can fit in the Colt. But Colt, what can I say to you to get you in this Colt today? I like that question, Mel. That's this week's question, Mel. And the person with our favorite answer to this week's question, Mel, wins our new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap. You can check out the new gray on black This Is Hell trucker's cap by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question, Mel, right now at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can tweet it to us via Twitter at (laughs) thisishellradio. You can email it to uh, Alex or I. Alex at thisishell.com, Chuck at thisishell.com, but we have to have your answer in by the end of Thursday's show when we announce every week's winner. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history, September 21st, 1979. 41 years ago this Monday, an American military surveillance satellite called Vela 10, orbiting high above the Indian Ocean, detected a bright double flash of energy occurring in the region of the Prince Edward Islands, a remote archipelago inhabited only by a few scientists at a research station there. Not to be confused with Prince Edward Island, singular, off of New Brunswick, Canada, these Prince Edward Islands, as in plural, are in the sub-Antarctic Indian Ocean. The flash was found to be possibly consistent with an atmospheric disturbance produced by a nuclear explosion of perhaps three or four kilotons. The Vela satellite system had previously detected 41 similar events around the world, which had later been confirmed all as nuclear weapons tests. This new event was similar to those in most respects, though not all. Some experts 
suggested that the flash could have been caused by a meteor entering Earth's atmosphere, but others warned of a possible secret nuclear test mounted jointly by Israel and Apartheid South Africa. 1979, Israel partnering with Apartheid South Africa in making a weapon of mass destruction. That sounds just about right. U.S. aircraft were sent to the region to look for radioactive fallout, but the data they collected proved inconclusive. Neither Israel nor apartheid South Africa has ever taken a responsibility for the mysterious event. And while U.S. intelligence experts have expressed strong belief that the flash was indeed nuclear, its cause has never been determined or acknowledged with certainty. So, let me say with certainty... This weren't no meteor. In rotten history throughout late September 1950, 70 years ago this week, skies in the eastern United States and Canada were filled with thick clouds of haze that blotted out the sun and turned day into night. Street lights in some cities came on at midday. Farm animals acted strangely and birds went to roost in the trees as if it were dusk. Yes, it was the end of times. It was the worst of times. The smoke had traveled across the continent from British Columbia and Alberta, where the largest single North American firestorm in recorded history was consuming more than three and a half million acres of western forest, which is equivalent to about what has been lost in California this month. Most experts attributed the cause to human activity, possibly fires set by farmers to clear land from agriculture for agriculture given the sparse human population in western canada at the time and a lack of firefighting resources the blaze was allowed to continue until it burned itself out in late october the smoke eventually made its way across the atlantic to europe where it darkened skies in ireland and scandinavia at which time both scandinavia and ireland were both revealed to be girls Finally, in rotten history, on September 25th, 1690, 330 years ago this Friday, the first multi-page newspaper ever to appear in North or South America was published and sold in Boston, Massachusetts. Its publisher, Benjamin Harris, had done prison time in London for printing a book that was held to contain seditious libel against the British government. After his release, he had left England to avoid further harassment. Harris's new Boston Journal was a four-page paper titled public occurrences, both foreign and domestic. So yes, with that masthead, it did have to be a broadsheet, and that's a joke for you print-setting types, as is that one. Earlier news publications in the American colonies had only been single-page broadsides, issued sporadically by various small-scale printers, but the inaugural issue of public Occurrences announced that it would appear on a regular schedule. It was packed with interesting news about a recent major fire in the city, an ongoing smallpox epidemic, a farmer's depression and suicide, and local people's complicated and often gruesomely violent relations with other white colonists and Native Americans in the area. So pretty much, you know, like the news today. The paper also carried reports on British naval activities in the Caribbean and the North Atlantic. The first issue of Public Occurrences was also its last. Four days after the paper appeared, the British colonial government of Massachusetts issued an order that it be shut down, claiming it was fake news. Okay, they didn't, but like Trump, the monarchy hated the press. The order stipulated that any future news publisher would have to obtain a license and consent from the government. Harris was not jailed, but the colonial authorities confiscated and destroyed every copy of his paper they could find. Only one copy has survived to the present day. After Harris's publication was suppressed, no other newspaper would be published in the United States, or I should say the American colonies, for another 14 years. In other words, 
get ready for the Trump administration to suggest journalism licenses, which I think he's already done, and Trump's approval for anything to be reported. That's Rotten History. This is Hell. Alex, what's happening on tomorrow's This is Hell? Uh, we're talking to Christian Sorensen about his new book, Understanding the War Industry. And then on Wednesday? Wednesday, uh, 2 p.m., everybody. 2 p.m., not 10 o'clock, because I have been uh, trying to get Abram Lustgarden on the show uh, for like three or four years, and we finally got him to talk about his giant, big new ProPublica piece, Climate Change Will Force a New American Migration, and also earlier piece called uh, Where Will Everyone Go? It's uh, going to be really depressing. The uh, It was the cover article in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, if anybody uh, out there gets the time. So that is uh, Wednesday at 2 p.m., not 10 a.m. Right. And then on Thursday, Jeffy will be here to do the Moment of Truth, and we'll tell you what's happening on that show, who our guest will be later on this week. We are currently looking for new volunteer board operators to join us here on This Is Hell. If you are interested in running the board, as Alex has done nearly every day for several years now, as Richard does, as Theron does, email me, Chuck, at This Is hell.com chuck at this is hell.com with alex's kid getting older and in-person schooling impossible during a pandemic alex needs to devote more of his time to child care so all of this means we are looking for new volunteers to run the board and interact with me on air as alex does if you want to join us just email me chuck at this is hell.com this position does come with a modest stipend so keep that in mind as well we are looking for people who can run the board anywhere from one two three four even all five days every week here at our studio above carrie's lounge 2251 west Devon, with shows beginning every morning at 10 a.m however we are very flexible and if you can only do it weekly or a couple times a month we can work with your schedule this is your opportunity to have access to a professional studio for your own projects as well so maybe you want to do your own podcast if you are interested in becoming a board operator here on This Is Hell, email me. Of course, with this position, you need to live in the Chicago area. However, we will also be seeking help from those of you who can work with us remotely, stuff that can be done no matter where you live. If you're in London or Laos, it doesn't matter. You can be part of the This Is Hell crew wherever you live, so stay tuned in for that. We also want to thank those of you who went to thisishell.com and clicked on support this week. Thanks to Adam A., Gregory K., someone named Anonymous, and apparently a relative of theirs, also named Anonymous. Thank you for your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support to show your support for completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Support, support, support. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show live stream podcast host Chuck Mertz producing this week's show, Alex Jerry. Thanks to Kate Clark, Alex Jerry, and thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. Special thanks to Theron and Richard for all the work that they do on the show as well. We told you so. This is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>